0: Get out in 2018 because you're voting for me in 2018. You're voting for me.
1: These are difficult, even painful times in the Hall of Congress and across our country. We're
0: seeing first-time candidates getting involved. And that is what the political revolution is about.
2: Welcome to The Candidate. We're doing a special edition today for the U.S. midterms. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and I'm joined in studio by NUI Galway law lecturer Larry Donnelly and our reporter Gronia Nié. The U.S. midterms, we've heard so much about them over the last few weeks, um, but they, we're, we're unsure of their significance a lot of the time here. They happen every two years. So why are we hearing about them so much now? Grania? we we're going to go right back to basics. What the hell are the U.S. midterms?
1: So, for an outsider or anyone listening from Ireland, it, it can seem quite complicated the political system. So, we're going to run through the real basics first of all. Uh, the, the midterm elections are held midway point through the presidential term, and they're kind of a freshening up of all arms of the U.S. government, so that's the U.S. Congress, state governorships, and other local legislatures. So, we're looking looking at the U.S. Congress. Then they're made up of two houses: the House of Representatives and uh, the, the Senate so the equivalent So these are
2: the two main ones that we hear about these are the ones with the actual power
1: Absolutely yeah and if you think about the House of Representatives that's the doll for the US and then the, the Senate is obviously Shanna Darren. Um and it's really interesting because for the past uh, two years of uh, or for the past two years we have been uh, looking at the House of Representatives in Republican control and the Senate in Republican control as well. And with a Republican president, that's a lot of power for Donald Trump to make decisions, to pass laws. Um, And we've seen how handy it was when he was trying to appoint Judge Brett Kavanaugh. So that's just one example of that.
2: And that's actually just to bring that analogy back. It's quite a crude example to use the Shannon and the Senate because obviously the, the Senate has a lot more power to be able to do things than, say, the Shannon can because they can actually, you know, get those appointments across the line and they can stop the Mueller investigation and things like that.
1: C- completely. Um, and the, the, Majority there. I mean, even if the, even that the Republicans had control of the Senate, they only just passed that vote—50 votes to 48. Um, but yes, it is different. Obviously, it was like a, a very crude example. Try and get her head around the yeah, U.S. No, federal system. Yeah, no, it makes sense. System. But yeah. Um, but it's interesting because in this midterm election, so the the House of Representatives have 435 seats, and the Senate has 100. Um, to get to win a majority in the House of Representatives, the Democrats need. Twenty-four seats, and in the Senate it's just two. So, looking on a, a surface value, you would think that their better chances are in the Senate, but they're not. They're they're looking likely to win the House of Representatives and not the Senate. And um, that's a, there's a this is a very complicated system, but just very briefly, uh, the House of Representatives are up for re-election. Their, their members are up for re- re-election every two years. The Senate's every six years. So, not all seats are up for grabs uh, in the Senate in this midterm, only 35 seats out of the 100 are up for grabs. And if you break that down further, that, those 35 seats, 26 are held by Democrats and nine are held by Republicans. So that means literally the, the Republicans have less to lose. So, yeah, the Democrats have to
2: take two of nine, which is actually quite difficult. Like we know ourselves how difficult it is to beat an incumbent after what we've just seen. So if, if there's nine seats up for grabs and they're Republican ones, well, more than likely they're going to stay Republican, right?
1: Exactly. And that that is the expectation, as well as that 10 of those uh uh, seats that the Democrats um, have are, are are going to lose, for example, were seats that were held in states won by Donald Trump in the presidential election. So that just makes it more likely that they're actually going to make a loss, the Democrats and the Republicans are going to make gains in the Senate. They're swimming
2: against a tide there. Exactly. OK, so at the moment we have a Republican House, we have a Republican Senate, we have a Republican president. Um, and that's why we're hearing a lot about these at the moment, because people are... Looking at this and going right, how can we shift power in the U.S. And
1: when you when you look at Obama's um, during the the first midterm Obama faced, uh, he was it was quite an interesting. It was a low turnout there, um, but he had to face then uh, a Senate which was Republic He lost or the Senate that he lost that to the Republicans in a, in a midterm. Um, so he had less power during his presidency than Donald Trump has thus far, which is quite interesting and. It makes it, I suppose, more relevant for voters that when you have a Republican president, a Republican House and a Republican Congress, that maybe the Democrats are like, well, I need to, you know, go out and vote. It's more of an incentive, I suppose.
2: Yeah, Larry, when you when you look at that, the current state of play, what? Um why are people so interested in these midterms? We don't have this every single time there's a midterm election.
0: No, I think there's unprecedented interest in the midterms this time around here in Ireland. I think people are grasping just how important they are, in part because of the recent Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, But also this is a microcosm in many ways of the Donald Trump presidency. And one way or another, there are going to certainly be regional and local issues that will be to the fore uh, in all of these battles. But one way or another, this is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump presidency. And I think that's why people are so fascinated by it uh, and are tuning in more closely than they have, at least in my experience.
2: So do you think people will vote very much along the lines of if this is my if I'm against Trump, I will find my Democrat to vote for in both elections?
0: Uh, I think that will be part of it. I mean, again, there will be I mean, all politics is local to some extent at the end of the day. uh, And people will vote for those reasons. People will vote on likability factors. A lot of these, especially members of the House of Representatives, would have their own personalized, Local following—that's something quite different from uh, party allegiance. Uh, but at the end of the day, yes, I think that especially the casual voter, the voters who will su- who will swing this uh, one way or another, um, their view on Donald Trump ultimately may be the dispositive factor in this.
2: And so the predictions at the moment, Grania was saying there that probably the Senate will stay Republican, but the House might swing Democrat. What does that mean then?
0: Well, it, it would will, it will mean—I mean, I would gr- agree generally with the the conventional wisdom, which is that the Democrats will take the House. They need to retake 24 seats, which is no mean feat, uh, but I expect that they probably will just about get there. What that means for Donald Trump uh, is that in both both all legislation needs to get past both houses of Congress. So the House can effectively stymie some of his agenda uh, and, I, I suppose, thwart some of his more radical initiatives that he's mooted before— But that having been said, there is a school of thought out there among people close to the president that this actually would be no bad thing. Because first of all, uh, if he were to be removed from office, that would have to be be done by the Senate. There's no way the two-thirds of the United States Senate is going to remove Donald Trump unless there's something spectacular out of the Mueller investigation. So if we put impeachment to one side then, the reality becomes if Trump is thwarted by the Democrats in the House, then effectively he can run for election in two years' time against Nancy Pelosi, who will be... speaker of the house if the democrats take over nancy pelosi is the most unpopular national political figure uh, in the united states if a lot of people think and i think they're right um, that if donald trump can cast his re-election candidacy as him against her it is a very very big political advantage for him
2: Do you think he's thinking long term at the moment like that?
0: Uh, No, I mean, look, I think that he is looking to save as many uh, Republican seats as he can. I think his conduct in the places he's going to suggests that he knows that the Republicans are in trouble in the House. Uh, I think mainly what he's concerned with now is maintaining or even gaining a seat or two in the Senate, which I think is possible even if the Democrats uh, lose the House. I think that's his short term agenda. But what I'm not so sure is he's convinced that, for instance, the issue of immigration is what he's going to really put a lot of his on the line. He's going to put that as the the main issue in the closing days. Uh, I'm just not so sure uh, whether that's a winning strategy, because even though a lot of people on the political right would agree largely uh, with his stance on immigration, most of them at the end of the day aren't voting on immigration. they're voting on what's in their pockets.
1: I think just to add on to two p- uh, points made there on on Trump as well, I think it'd be interesting to see him him lose the Republican majority in uh, the House of Representatives because for for a long time, his campaign has been about the polls are wrong. the media is wrong. this kind of fake news thing, and this could be like the first political loss for him. and it'd be interesting to see how he deals with that because it isn't the media. It, it's literally voters taking a vote out of the presidency. So that'll be really interesting to see how he reacts to that. And then um, the other point on the issues of the campaign. This is a referendum on Trump. People have been saying, but the other issues that people are concerned about, the ordinary people. So that's the economy and jobs, immigration and healthcare. So it's, it's really interesting to see that those three issues are actually split by the parties as well. So Republicans have been focusing on jobs and the economy and on immigration but uh, the Democratic Party have been pushing healthcare which is really interesting um, kind of split to see.
2: Are there any particular races, Larry, that, that show those? In, what, what are you interested in? What races are you really looking forward to seeing on Tuesday?
0: Yeah, I mean, first I think it needs to be said that there are literally dozens of House races that have fascinating dynamics and that could go either way that are still absolute toss-ups but I, know, I don't want to lose the audience uh, digging into the minutiae of those. Uh, I've looked at three Senate races uh, in particular that are very, very close, and one gubernatorial race, because I think it's fascinating, the dynamics of that. But Just the,
2: give us an explanation of a gubernatorial race. This is
0: an, an election for governor, an election for governor in particular in this instance is the state of, in the state of Georgia, which I'll come to in a, in a minute. But the three Senate races that I've been looking at closely uh, are in Missouri, Indiana, and Arizona. The reasons I'm looking at the races in Missouri and Indiana are because those are two two states that Donald Trump won by, by very solid margins and two states in which Democratic senators are seeking re-election. Uh, so in theory, at least, they each face a tough, a tough and uphill battle. Uh, I'm looking at Arizona because this is the seat that was vacated by uh, Jeff Flake, who will have become a household name because of his rather tortured posturing uh, around the Kavanaugh nomination. And indeed, Jeff Flake uh, is responsible for, having that uh, FBI investigation, albeit a truncated one, uh, with respect to Brett Kavanaugh. Now, in Missouri...
2: People will, just to remind people, people will remember him from that lift, the, the elevator when he was being shouted at by protesters.
0: Absolutely. And, and that seemed to have a, a, very, a, a real impact on him because it was after he was confronted uh, by those women who were protesting what had happened. It was after that, that he made the decision uh, that there needed to be an FBI investigation. Uh, now, again, he was a little bit all over the place with respect. To what he wanted, but it did at least provoke that reaction from him. Um, but in Missouri, uh, Claire McCaskill is a Democrat, a moderate Democrat, who's seeking re-election against a guy named Josh Hawley, who's a very young, uh, 38-year-old seeking election to the Senate. The reason I'm watching this, and again, this is razor tight, the reason I'm watching this is because Claire McCaskill in the closing days of the campaign has actually turned her fire somewhere you wouldn't expect, and that is against Elizabeth Warren uh, as somebody who's too liberal, as somebody who she wouldn't support, and someone who is not her type of Democrat. And this is very much to reach out to uh, moderate voters in Missouri and indeed to some people who voted for Donald Trump to say that she's a Democrat who will stand up on the issue uh, of health care and other things, like Ron, you mentioned but isn't as far to the left uh, as Elizabeth Warren. So the dynamics there are really interesting. The other one, again, similarly where where Trump's state uh, held by a Democrat, uh, is where Joe Donnelly, no relation, uh, is seeking reelection to his seat against a businessman uh, who is very uh, loyal to Trump. That race is Absolutely, raise the tide. And again, Donnelly is a moderate Democrat who only mentions the ti- Only mentioned that he only mentions that he's a Democrat when he's forced to. The reason I mention that one is because a lot of people here would be curious about third parties. Does a third party ever have an impact in a race? And in that race, which again, the most recent aggregates in the Real Clear Politics polling show that there's about a point eight, point eight, percent uh, between the two, with Donnelly having a slight lead. And if that margin were borne out. There is a Libertarian candidate who is polling at about 3% uh, right now. Libertarians in the United States would see themselves as small government, constitutional purists. Generally, they draw draw votes from people on the political right. She would be perceived as hurting the Republican in this race. So if Donnelly pulls this out, it could well be that the third-party candidate has benefited his candidacy and he has won as a result. The last race, the last Senate race I'm looking at, again, Jeff Flake's seat that he's leaving because he's retiring. Uh, and this features a Republican congresswoman uh, seeking elevation to the Senate. Uh, her name is Martha McStay, and she prevailed in a very hard fought uh, Republican primary against one uh, candidate who was very faithful to Donald Trump and another person who people might know, a guy named Joe Apeo, who's a sheriff down there who infamously uh, set up tent cities and had inmates walking the streets and shackles and all sorts of other, uh, I, said, I think, outrageous stunts. She, in order to win that primary, she had to move to the right and really endorse Trump. Uh, Now she's moving back towards the middle uh, and trying to appeal to a more mainstream audience. And the fascinating thing about the person who she's running against uh, is another congresswoman named Kristen Sinema, uh, who's Cast herself as a moderate uh, Democrat uh, and has a moderate voting record, but at the same time, again, this might be interesting to people here. She would also be the first atheist, avowedly atheist member of Congress, and she's also would be the first bisexual member uh, of Congress. So the dynamics there are fascinating. And one of the other reasons I bring it up is because, and this is what causes me doubt about whether immigration is the issue that Trump should put all of his cards into, is. Arizona is a border state, which has been disproportionately affected uh, by immigration or over the border, and there are issues with respect to resources in Mex- in Arizona. People have legitimate concerns there. Despite all of that, and despite Trump's rhetoric, it doesn't seem to be moving the numbers very much for Martha McStay. The Democrat Kristen Cinema is right there, uh, right right there with us. So in many ways, this will be a referendum on Trump's immigration policy as well, and that again uh, is a nail biter. It's absolutely too close to call.
2: Yeah, I was I was listening to. Uh- an American podcast yesterday and they were saying there's actually in that base of Trump's there's a lot of farmers who actually are okay with illegal immigration because that's where they get their workers from.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people back in the day if you recall uh, a lot of people would have said that George W. Bush who's since been lauded as somebody who was a progressive on immigration uh, a lot of more cynical observers would have said the reason why he's so okay with illegal immigration is a lot of his big money backers down in Texas relied on that labor to make money.
2: Yeah, a lot of the races Larry brought up there, Grania, um, have women involved, and you wrote this morning for the journal about um, the pink wave. It's obviously everything has a, a nickname in U.S. politics. So this pink wave is about the number of women. Um, is that a result of Trump and the the you know the Women's March happened immediately after his inauguration? Is that is this the immediate backlash to him?
1: Uh, that seems to be the case. So since the Women's March it happened soon after inauguration and then we had another one earlier this year where again millions turned out and the point of the one earlier or the Women's March earlier this year was to register people uh, so that they could vote in this midterm election so they're trying to kind of actually not just turn out on the streets but turn up on voting day as well and then so that so how many people turn out to vote and you know back that kind of their, the candidates that they would prefer the more progressive candidates I suppose is one arm of it and the other one is the representation uh, on the ballot sheet so we've had 262 women um, on the ballot paper over 500 I think ran to, to be on the ballot and then 244 LGBTQ candidates are on the ballots as well which is a uh, huge. That's, so that's a phenomenal
2: number if you compare it to the the number of women. Completely
1: yeah. and then the interesting thing is it's not that they're running on you know platforms of LGBTQ issues obviously that is one element of it but they are um, candidates uh, talking about all sorts of issues and they, they aren't boxed in i suppose as a kind of a a one-dimensional or one one kind of policy politician which is really interesting as well um so you have the possibility so arizona will definitely get its first female senator um in this midterm because the two candidates running uh are both female um and then the so uh cinema was mentioned earlier there and then the other interesting point on incumbents so there's a, like, a tendency to vote for an incumbent in uh, US midterms. And a lot of Republican uh, candidates ha- have decided they're not going to run for election this midterm. A record-breaking, I think, 39 Republican candidates who aren't going to rerun this time round. Running
2: away from Trump and With, his administration. Well,
1: that is that, that is what people have have kind of... Taken uh, that to mean, um, so that means that they the Democrats have a better chance of taking those the seats in those states where the incumbent is no longer running. So that's quite interesting as well. But ag- again, on the minor this has opened the floor to all these minority candidates. There is a um, uh, Nevada could elect more uh, women lawmakers than men in its state legislature. That's at state level, not at a federal level. Um, there is a lot of uh, Native American candidates running. I think there's two um, Muslim candidates running for Congress. So there's this quite wide-ranging spread of, of um, I suppose, a reaction to the, the rhetoric that Trump has, has had during the past year. And people do say or that there is a kind of uh, an expectation that um, that representation is in response to, to to what kind of issues I suppose Trump has thrown up uh, during the year. Um, whether that translates into votes for those candidates is a completely different thing. And turnout will be massive. So, uh, historically, Republicans are more likely to vote um, in the midterms. And if we see a higher turnout than normal, that would hint at that the Democrats are turning up to vote and that is kind of what we've seen in this early indication so far that there is a high turnout so Democrats are turning out to vote.
2: Turnout is one of the things that's f- been fascinating me and I, um, I'm not sure Larry if you follow Taylor Swift on Instagram um, but what she has been doing over the last two weeks or so has been um, encouraging people to vote and she is um, I was tweeting about this she is like, notoriously apolitical throughout her entire career she's obviously a country singer by er- originality She, her f- initial fan base is a Trump, like if you put them together, her initial fan base are Trump families or, or Republican voters. So she's, it's obvious why she has never been political. She has come out with these really strong statements about getting out, turning out to vote and, and has said, vote for your Democrat. What she's been doing over the last while, which I think is very interesting, is every time someone sends her a photo with their I voted sticker, she's putting it up on her feed. So even that I think is probably indicative of like how this has got into the mindset of American people.
0: Yeah, there's there's no question that, that there's enthusiasm there uh, among young people and among other groups who desperately want to take Donald Trump out, who want to send a message to him this time. The question all becomes, I know it's trite to say, because all elections depend on turnout, but this one in particular depends on the nature of the turnout. Typically in American midterms, the turnout hovers around 40%. And as Grania says, that typically favors uh, Republican voters who are whiter, wealthier, uh, more educated, to, in, in at least historically, and um, that they would be more likely to turn out. Um, this time around, uh, it's an open question. And if we see turnout start to creep towards the 50% mark, uh, then I don't think that can be read as anything other, but a very, very good sign for Democrats. Uh, and indeed, I think that's why so many people are cautiously, uh, pointing to the reality that Democrats, um, will likely take back the house of representatives. And one of the key groups that we, we haven't talked about, I mean, again, it's, it's a famous statistic now, um, that 53% of white women in the United States voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, um, not, and when you break that down uh, less than 50% of college educated suburban white female voters um, went for Donald Trump but a strong plurality did and one of the key questions is going to be how much of that demographic moves towards which is a reliable voter demographic moves to the Democratic column and that will I think hinge in many respects on some of the recent events that have happened. The Kavanaugh nomination is one thing the recent attempted nail bombing is another uh, and the uh, the Pittsburgh synagogue incident will be a third thing. And again, these are things that people who mightn't be politicos, who are, more, who are more casual observers of politics and current affairs, the effect that these more recent happenings have on them consciously and subconsciously when they go into the ballot box, that could well be decisive.
1: I, I think though there's a dual there's kind of uh, nature to that. So when we spoke to uh, Jane Sanders O'Mara earlier this year, she said that she, they were... Trying to encourage people to get involved and to vote in the midterms and all of that, but she was worried that there was an element of fatigue that there's scandal after scandal and problem after problem, and that people were just switching off, which I think is another element when you mention all these issues, maybe the proximity to the to the midterms matters or is relevant but um there's a there's, there is a cohort maybe they you know when you think about a person who didn't turn up to the women 's March but agree with the sentiment of it, will that person turn up to vote so we're, we're expecting the activists and the people actually engage to turn up to vote, but what about that other cohort that agree with the sentiment but aren't you know, actually active?
0: And if, if, if that does hold true, then one of the criticisms that I and many others would have launched against the Democratic Party in recent months uh, would, be tr- would be true, and that is that the Democrats haven't really articulated a coherent message other than, we don't like Donald Trump. Uh, you can give people a reason to vote against something all day long, but you need to give them a positive reason to vote for something. Uh, and I do think that that also is going to be a factor in this election and a factor that will likely work to the Republicans' advantage.
2: Yeah, there was, was a poll um, released yesterday that said 80% of American people um, think that there is and don't like the incivility in politics at the moment. But when it came to who to blame for that incivility, they were mixed. So there was about 40% said it was Trump, about 29% said it was the media. So you're looking at a divide there saying, OK, you, you might not like what's going on. But if it, again, like you say, if there's not a clear message of how to fix it, then... Then why go out and vote or, or yeah. why engage? And
1: then that, that point about having something positive to vote for, so make make America great again was obviously Donald Trump's slogan and that's something quite positive. And uh I think Hillary Clinton was criticized for not for being critical but not having a kind of a positive vision. Um, it was kind of like, you know, when we we criticise, I think, the political message, which was keep the recovery going here. And it, w- it was kind of like, well, some people aren't feeling that recovery and you're saying keep it going, not let's strive for something better almost. Um, that's the kind of same thing. People want something like bright and shiny to kind of strive for instead of, you know, let's keep things at an even keel.
2: Larry, where do Irish Americans fit into all of this? They're a unique group in in the in the ways that we can almost stereotypes is the wrong word, but we can group them together in some ways. But they do swing every few decades. Where are they now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can only speak to my own group of friends, which I mean, maybe this reflects reflects on the lack of diversity, or it reflects on the na- the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, almost all of whom are Irish Americans, and indeed, I'm in the minority for not having at least one Irish born parent where I grew up. Um, they are all over the map. Um, Irish America is not a monolithic entity. My friends are pretty equally divided between uh, Trump supporters and um people who voted for Hillary Clinton or people who had voted for somebody else. Um, they are equally divided, I think, this time around. Uh, some have faded away, including a lot of my Women I'm friendly with. Uh, some of them have faded away from Trump and regret that they voted for him. Others, however, have been more hardened than ever uh, by what they've seen uh, and are voting for Trump. And I mean, the reasons why uh, are fascinating, why Irish America has changed. And this points to the difference between uh, Ireland and Irish America. Uh, I think two things are really prominent in all of this. One is uh, once, and some of my friends have been phenomenally successful, uh, and once they make start to make money, um, policy, Republican policies uh, of less taxes uh, and you know you can keep more of your own money uh, start to appeal, especially when they're facing big bills. Even if they are making lots of money, people living in the northeastern the United States have extraordinary bills when it comes to mortgages, childcare, college tuitions, all sorts of different things that message resonates very strongly with them. Secondly, uh, again, a lot of one of the things that's drawn Irish America into the arms of the Republicans uh, is the Republicans' embrace, I suppose, of cultural conservatism on the one hand, and the Democratic Party's rejection of a more big-tent approach on cultural issues in favor of moving to the hard left and being less accepting of people of faith, uh, at least as, pe- as a lot of people would see it based on their party platform. Those two factors have driven the traditional Irish American Democrat, a lot of them, into the Republican camp. And the third factor that's at play still, uh, there's this vision that Irish America is all very much successful and has moved on, but there's still an awful lot of blue collar Irish Americans, again, a lot of my friends, uh, and in places like Boston, or in, or more, more importantly, in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, Donald Trump has convert, won a lot of converts from them because of the trade issue, because they think that Bill Clinton and the Democrats, by endorsing NAFTA and other free trade Agreements have sold organized labor down the river. Uh, and when Donald Trump came out and said, I'm going to rework NAFTA, I'm going to bring American jobs home, those sentiments resonated very strongly with a lot of Irish Americans in key states like Ohio and Pennsylvania.
2: It's really interesting listening to you describe the Trump uh, support. It's a it's a broad church. There's a lot of things going on there. Yet all we've heard from him over the last few days is immigration this invasion that caravan it's it's all he's been talking about he's pinning tweets that you know can be deemed as very racist you know um and that seems to be an unusual play
0: that you that's that's been my thought the whole time and that and that's why i'm critical of it But to me, it's very, very strongly indicative of what Gráinne has said earlier, uh, that Trump, behind closed doors, Republicans are admitting to themselves that the House is gone. Uh, And what they're trying to do desperately is to cling to as many House seats as they possibly can, and to hopefully keep their Senate majority. The way that they think they can do that is by ensuring their base gets out. And if their base gets out, then they can hold on. And Trump sees immigration as the issue that's going to rile up the base. Uh, I think it's a singularly mistaken strategy. But again, Trump's proven me wrong more than once.
1: I think as well when you when you look historically, that's kind of worked for Trump uh, when he was initially going for president. When he said um, that he would kind of limit immigration, that's kind of when he got that surge behind him initially. So it's uh, maybe it's a, a case of this has worked for me before. I'm just going to keep. It's his go-to play. It. Exactly.
2: Would you be worried about his reaction if he does lose the house? So he, we, we've seen his absolute adoration of executive orders. He's talked about signing one about the constitutional change that we did ourselves here in our constitution about birthright citizenship. He said, I can do it by executive order. I'll have all of these things ready next week. Will he become more fond of the executive order if he doesn't have the House?
0: It, it that, that could well be. I mean, he's so unpredictable, we don't know what he's going to go ahead with. I mean, as for the executive order, I know he's talking about this language that says subject to the jurisdiction of an Article 14. But I think if you talk to any serious constitutional scholar, they will tell you that the plain language is immutable. You cannot get around it. Uh, and indeed, I could not imagine any federal judge uh, upholding an executive order to that effect uh, on immigration, on, on people born in the United States. States. I just don't see that happening. Whether he will um, use executive orders more often, I'm not sure. If I were advising him, and God knows he wouldn't listen to me, if I were advising him and the Democrats did retake the House, then what I would try to do is a little bit of classic Bill Clinton triangulation. That is, I would be pushing uh, for a big infrastructure project. One of the things he did when he ran for president was say he was going to rebuild American infrastructure, an idea that indeed the very left of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders, couldn't really argue with that. He'd be in favor of it. But at the same time, would have provoked some opposition from the Republican right, who are laissez-faire, who don't believe in government spending. If the Democrats were to retake the House uh, and I were advising Trump, I'd say, well, You say, President Trump, say to the Democrats, well, let's do business. Let's try and do this, uh, and let's try to put together a form. And that not only would be good politically, it would be good for the country. Anybody who's been in the United States recently will see the infrastructure is crumbling and desperately needs investment. Whether he would do something like that, uh, it's beyond who knows. Uh, I suspect probably not, and I suspect he might double down and use more executive orders, but I think that would be politically foolish.
2: In terms of what the U.S., Feels like now. I um, just to bring it back to a, a personal anecdote. I lived there in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight during um, the Obama prim- primaries. I felt the language being used around Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. It was quite uncomfortable, but it was also the only thing people talked about. If you were in a bar, if you were in work, it, it was literally the only thing people talked about. It was the only thing on telly, Saturday Night Live. All of that was happening. Is it the same there now? Is it uncomfortable? How do people feel about US politics?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there is there is definitely that. I mean, if you are anywhere in America, you know, and I suppose Massachusetts is something of a bubble, and that's where I spend most of my time. In the sense that Donald Trump isn't usually popular, though he does have his fans. Uh, there is political discussion going on all the time, and it is very much about Trump and the impact Trump has had, and whether uh, Trump is on putting the country in the right path or the wrong path or whatever it might be. Uh, there is also, I think, a counter revolution is probably the wrong word, but a counter to that as well, uh, and that a lot of people I think are really sick of it. And I think a lot of people are kind of one way or the other, either whether they're voting for Democrats or whether they're just not talking about politics, that's also simmering under the surface. But indeed, if you look at the opinion polls, uh, you will see um, a country that is divided, a country that views things very differently and people who view things very differently and uh, regions geographically uh, that are probably more polarized now than they have been in in the history of the United States. So uh, all of this you know, it's very hard to get your head around. It's very hard to get your head around why uh, Donald Trump is where he is. But I think that the important point to make here is that uh, Donald Trump got elected president, I think, out of the frustration so many Americans feel uh, with the leadership of both political parties. Uh, And that, I think, is something that's going to have to be reckoned with and dealt with. And A lot of it flows from the role of money in politics, which has incentivized both parties, one moving way to the right, one moving way to the left. And most Americans, despite the fact they only can choose from people on the right and the left, most Americans define themselves somewhere in the middle of that. So whenever you have such a disconnect between policies and platforms and where most people are, you're going to have political problems.
2: Okay, thanks very much, Larry. Grania, you're going to be up. We go to the US, go to the polls on Tuesday, the sixth. You're going to start live blogging on thejournal.ie at what
1: time? At ten
2: p.m. through till six.
1: Um, or whenever we have a more so, definitive of result. <laughs>
2: hopefully, we'll have results. We might not have results. That's one of the things. If if it's very tight, we will be waiting on postal results and we actually might not know the outcome for a couple of days. But we will bring all of it to you on the journal.ie. And our columnist, Larry Donnelly, I'm sure will have a take for you as well at some point in the coming weeks. You've been listening to the journal.ie's The Candidate Special US Midterms Podcast, presented by myself, Sinead O'Carroll, produced by Nikki Ryan and Efa Barry, edited by Nikki Ryan and Andrew. Roberts joined in studio by Gronini A and Larry Donnelly we recorded in the Headstuff studios in Dublin